the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I am happy to announce that James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has generously made his office space available. Hey, glad to be with you this afternoon. We're going to talk with Stephen Mosier. He's one of America's leading China experts. He's also the author of Bully of Asia. And he argues in the book and in our conversation that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible both for the origin and the global spread of COVID-19. And he makes the point that now more than ever, the United States foreign policy has to consistently and resolutely direct curbing this dangerous and power-hungry People's Republic of China. So we'll talk with him about that in lieu of the fallout from recent disclosures about the origin, which, you know, I think everyone, at least mostly everyone, is, is agreeing that this was not done purposefully, but the way it was handled was or mishandled was done purposefully. And that continues to be the case. He'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also talk with one of our clients, Gloria Hahn, whose program is heard right here on KPDQ, Real Estate Today. We'll find out how she's faring with this pandemic. And we're, uh, as you probably know by now, taking the opportunity to talk with some of our advertisers to give them an opportunity to give you a picture of what life is like for them and how we can support one another during this, uh, this challenging season. So Gloria Hahn will join us in our next segment. Also, before I hit the headlines, I want to mention that uh, Salem Media Group has jumped into the movie business, really, because um, No Safe Spaces was deprived of proper airing for reasons we've mentioned here before. But it's a documentary about free speech. Uh, Adam Carolla, nationally syndicated radio host Dennis Prager, both prominently featured, but there are lots of others on both sides of the political continuum who are featured as well. No Safe Spaces was uh, 2019's top-earning political documentary, and the film exposes the political toll that political correctness is taking on college campuses and beyond, what the future of America will look like if this is not checked now. Um, This is the first time that the, uh, uh, the first time that Salem Communications has been in this prospect, this Um, practice of making these um, documentaries available. So I'd love for you to take advantage of the opportunity. Again, No Safe Spaces now available to watch for a limited time only at nosafespaces.com. 1995, that's what it will cost most people, but for KPDQ listeners, use the discount code SAVE25, and that's precisely what you'll do, save 25% off. Again, nosafespaces.com for 1995, but for KPDQ listeners, save 25%. And uh, you will do just that. NoSafeSpaces.com. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines as some states loosen lockdown restrictions in a bid to set the nation's battered economy on the road to recovery. The president endorsed a state-by-state approach at a Fox News virtual town hall on Sunday and predicted that a coronavirus vaccine could be available by December. I think we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year, he said, speaking to moderators at the event saying he was very confident in the assessment. We'll have a vaccine much sooner rather than later. 
Well, asked by one of the commentators if he was concerned about the potential risks of accelerating a vaccine in human trials, the president responded, no, because they're volunteers. They know what they're getting into. They want to help the process, end quote. Well, that timeline was drastically ahead of previous estimates from both public and private sector experts at the outset of the pandemic, which had said a vaccine could take up to 18 months, if not longer. That's typical. But Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said this weekend it was doable, if things fall in the right place, to have a vaccine by January. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is gearing up for the majority of his state to enter phase one of the reopening process today with a coronavirus outbreak, and he says he's optimistic. DeSantis uh, said on Sunday morning that he will exercise caution, but has been looking forward to making progress. The only counties not beginning phase one this week, the harder hit Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. U.S. regulators and state officials are finding a significant number of imported N95-style masks fall short of certification standards, which means uh, men and women wearing them are more vulnerable. Um, complicating the response to the coronavirus crisis and potentially putting some frontline workers at greater risk, according to a Wall Street Journal report. Recent tests by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health found that about 60 percent of 67 different types of imported masks tested allowed in more tiny particles and at least one sample than U.S. standards normally permit. Now, one mask uh, that NIOSH tested sold in packaging uh, bearing unauthorized Food and Drug Administration logos, filtered out as little as 35% of particles. Another uh, marked KN95, a Chinese standard similar to N95, had one sample test below 15%, far short of the 95% it advertised. So you can't believe everything you read, particularly in PP&E. And the Chinese government likely withheld information about the severity of the novel coronavirus outbreak, so it would It would have time to hoard medical supplies, according to an intelligence report from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Politico viewed the report and its overall findings were first reported by the AP. The report reached its conclusion with moderate confidence, it said. And a New York Times op-ed on Sunday called on Democrats to dump Biden. Now, mind you, it was op-ed saying it's time to consider a plan B to reaffirm her support for the former vice president and diss her, uh, rather his accuser, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, said not every claim of sexual assault is equal. Interesting turn of phrase, given the position under the Kavanaugh uh, scenario. From another story, at least six people have corroborated details of Tara Reid's allegations of sexual assault against the presumptive 2020 Democratic nominee Joe Biden, according to a Daily Caller News Foundation review of public statements about the accusation. Reid's mother, brother, former neighbor, former co-worker, and at least her two friends have corroborated details of her story. Well, coronavirus isolation is leading to an increase in opioid deaths as people are seeking to medicate themselves. They're calling it Um, COVID fatigue. The story looks at uh, uh, tales from many cities and recent drug overdoses, people who simply cannot cope. The Department of Justice has stepped in to support uh, Virginia Church from the story. The church alleges that police issued a criminal citation and summons to Lighthouse Pastor for violating gathering orders after it held a 16-person Palm Sunday worship service in a 225-seat sanctuary while practicing rigorous social distancing and hygiene protocols. 225-seat capacity, 16 people. Well, California has declared churches a higher risk, and according to Hot Air, there are plenty of troubling stories of authorities encouraging neighbors to turn in neighbors 
The ABC New York says that New York police officers are cracking down on social distance violators and went an extra step and beat up one bystander in the process. Well, smart glasses are going to allow users to determine fellow citizens' temperature, according to this high-tech uber paranoia that we might expect in the days ahead. Well, on this day in history, 1970, Ohio National Guardsmen, they opened fire during an anti-war protest at Kent State University, killing four students and injuring nine others. On this day in history, 1886, at Haymarket Square in Chicago, a labor demonstration for an eight-hour workday turns into a deadly riot when a bomb explodes. On this day in history, in 1961, the first group of Freedom Riders leaves Washington, D.C. to challenge racial segregation on interstate buses and in bus terminals. 1998, on this day, the Unabomber, Theodore Kuzinski, he's given four life sentences plus 30 years by a federal judge in Sacramento, California, under a plea agreement that spares him the death penalty. And finally, on this day in history, 2006, a federal judge sentences Zacharias Musawi uh, to life in prison for his role in the 9-11 terror attacks, telling the convicted terrorist, you will die with a whimper. Well, there's some optimism on a potential treatment for COVID-19. The drug Remdesivir, or something very like that, could be available in hospital as early as this week, according to the CEO of the developer, Gilead. On Friday, the FDA allowed emergency use of the antiviral drug to treat COVID-19 patients. Meanwhile, researchers at the U.S.'s most advanced military agency have designed a coronavirus test that can identify people before they become infectious, according to a new report. Now, described as a potential game changer, the test came from a project at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, and was initially designed for diagnosing those who have become poisoned by germ or chemical warfare. America's slow road to reopening continued on Monday as more than a dozen states eased strict lockdown measures on businesses and social activities put in place to curb the spread of the virulent coronavirus. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Gloria Hahn and the Hahn team. She is the host of Real Estate Today. We'll talk about how this uh, pandemic is impacting her business and how we can support one another. She can offer services to you and you might benefit as well. So we're going to talk with her in just a few moments. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And as I mentioned, from time to time, we want to check in with um, some of our advertisers to see how they're faring with this new normal. They have supported uh, Christian Radio, and we want to make sure that we're supporting them as well. I wanted to give Gloria Hahn an opportunity to talk with you and kind of catch up with her. She and her team, um, they know the urban city streets. They know the rolling countryside and the people that make up the great Northwest, and they understand Oregon in Washington, they can help you find the perfect buyer or your next home. Now, Gloria has been uh, on KPDQ for a period of time as well with Real Estate Today, and I'm just delighted to say welcome, Gloria. I miss seeing your face, but it's nice to hear your voice. Well, thank you so much, Georgine, for allowing me to be on your show. Since we started our Real Estate Today show eight years ago, you've been my role model. So I'm so extremely honored to be on your show. Oh, bless your heart. That's very kind. Before we get started, let me ask you, how are you doing with this new normal and quarantining in place? Well, I'm working, working, working. Uh, I do work from my home office, but uh, I'm here at my office in Clackamas right now because I just, I need to get out. I'm a people person and 
this staying home is just not working good for me. So <laughs> I'm a lawbreaker. I'm sure Governor Brown will find me sooner or later, but we'll see. Well, for listeners who haven't had the opportunity to hear real estate today and are not familiar with what you all do, let me just give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about you and the Han team. Uh, well, we've been doing the Real Estate Today show for oh, about eight years now. Uh, I am a realtor with Remax Equity Group, licensed in both the state of Washington and Oregon. I've been doing real estate in Oregon for over 25 years and in Washington about five. So been doing this a while. I still love it. I still love going out and working with people. I work with sellers and buyers. And so I'm still excited about what I do. Oh, that's great. Now, how has this um, pandemic impacted your business? Are people still buying and selling homes or how has this uh, affected you? Well, it's amazing. Our daily routines have been affected in listings and showings. Like, for example, my office here is closed but I'm here a lot and the rest of the time I'm working from home. So if a property is vacant, we can pretty much uh, show it just as normal as we did before. Uh, we can do our listing, our photo shoots and our showings, but we still are utilizing safe procedures, including masks, booties and gloves. Our photographers are still working. So the photo shoots go as normal, but they're requiring that the house be unoccupied for the shootings. And when properties are occupied, it gets a little more uh, confusing because we have to really set a good appointment with the seller and make sure that they're comfortable having people coming through their home that they don't know. Mm -hmm. Once we make that contact with the sellers or the seller's agent and they're comfortable with that, then we utilize the same safety precautions. We suit down, put on our, our booties, our gloves, our mask, and we're very careful when we go through the house to try not to even touch anything. So, you know, it's it's a whole different show, but it's still working. Yeah, yeah. Now, I imagine for many of our listeners, they anticipated summer is coming, we're in late fall, and they're going to list their homes or they're going to start to look mm -hmm. for new homes. This is kind of the season when people are really thinking about either buying or selling. Is this still a good time for people who are thinking one or the other? Or is the is the market depressed because of this pandemic that means um, there's just less available. Well, I was I listened to a webinar this morning from the National Association of Realtors, featuring several of their top economists, including Dr. Hun, who is the chief economist. And they are all very encouraged that the slowdown is temporary, and that our mar market will recover pretty quickly. And I feel that myself because I am still really busy. I mean, I'm still working every day, and I'm listing properties. I sold two this weekend. Um, so I really think I'm still very encouraged. It's not a bad time for people to be thinking about buying. We are, our inventory is extremely low. We're down below two months of inventory, which means if we stopped listing houses today within two months, we'd be out of inventory. So that just shows you the national average is five to six months. So we're way below in inventory, which is a good thing for anyone that's con considering selling. And I think right now is a perfect time for people that are home and uh, have that extra time that, to maybe start getting their homes ready if they're thinking that they want to sell in the next few months. Because normally April, May, and June are our best months mm -hmm. just historically. And so we've already lost April and we haven't gotten the numbers yet for April, but I anticipate they're going to be pretty low. March was a good month, so we've just been damaged in April. 
I think uh, we're going to see it start picking up. I know today I've had several phone calls from people that are ready to list their houses. So I think people are getting tired of staying in and they're starting to think about our new normal, whatever that may be. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's encouraging to hear that people are in the process of or have sold their homes, because I think a lot of people are wondering, should I wait? Should I move forward? And it's also encouraging to hear that there are ways for you and your team to prepare um, to show that house in a way that recognizes our social distancing and and, uh, necessary precautions that are taken and all of that. So if someone is thinking about selling their home, it's a good time to pick up the phone and give you a call and start that process? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm going to do my show this Friday on Real Estate Today about getting your house ready to sell. So we go through some hints of for people to prepare to be ready to sell. So I think it's currently how real estate is driven by people and people always need a place to live. Yeah, yeah. So I think one thing we've realized during this time that we've all realized how important and precious the safety of our homes are. And I'm hearing that many people are finding that working from home is kind of a good thing. And they may want to continue mm-hmm. the market of buyers and sellers, buyers that need more room to work at home, thus creating new sellers. So it may all be a, for a good thing. Well, and again, that's, a, that's good to hear. And for people who have put their plans on pause, let me encourage you to consider giving Gloria Hahn and her team a call to get things moving because it seems like this is a good time to do that. And by the way, Gloria's program, Real Estate Today, is heard right here on 93.9 KPDQ every Friday from 2 to 3. And as you pointed out, uh, today or Friday's program is going to be about preparing your home for sale. So it's very timely. Yeah, I think it will be. And I, I'm just encouraged. I'm Overall, I'm really optimistic. And after listening to that webinar this morning from the National Association, I'm even energized and and feeling that it's a good time. It's a wonderful place to live. It continues to attract new residents. We had 41,000-plus new residents move to our state last month, and the majority coming into our greater Portland-Vancouver areas. So we're growing, we're thriving, and uh, I think our real estate market is still very good. Absolutely. Now, a couple of things. The website, GloriaHahn.com, if you'd like to check out the website and all the ways to connect, that's Gloria Hahn. And the last name is spelled H-A-H-N, H-A-H-N, GloriaHahn.com. You can also phone them at 503-997-5745, 503-997-5745. I'm so glad Absolutely. to hear that, that things are going well, that you all are still um, able to serve people in our community, and I would like to encourage those who have put things on pause to give you a call or check out the website and start moving forward because this is the season and uh, things are looking up. They really are, and even the economists on the webinar said that they really expect when things, and I've heard this from many people right now, that when things start to open up, it's going to be kind of a boom because everybody will be really tired of being at home, really tired of not going out and doing anything, and I think it's going to be fast and furious in the summertime. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Gloria, thank you so much. We look forward to hearing you on Friday on how to prepare your home for sale on um, real estate today. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. Well, I'm so honored to be on your show. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you again. And I hope that soon. All right. Yes, I do too. (laughs) I miss everybody at the station. Take care and thank you again. 
You are so welcome. Thank you. Once again, you can go to the website, GloriaHahn.com, or you can phone them. And let me get these numbers right, 503-997-5745. You can also listen to Gloria on Real Estate Today, Fridays, right here on KPDQ, 93.9 FM, 2 to 3 o'clock p.m. And if you're looking to sell your house, this is going to be a great program for you. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we're going to continue to wind our way through some of the news, particularly as it applies to the pandemic and what the future might hold. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Stephen Mosier. He's one of America's leading China experts and the author of Bully of Asia. He's arguing that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible both for the origin and the global spread of COVID-19 and what the United States should do about it. He'll join us at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Well, America's slow road to reopening continues today as more than a dozen states eased strict lockdown measures on businesses and social activities that were put in place to curb the spread of the virulent coronavirus. Several states believe they've flattened the curve of infection uh, enough to phase in their uh, plans to stimulate their economies and open things up after more than a month of shuttered stores, restaurants, and citizens hunkered down at home. And, of course, citizens are becoming a bit uneasy as well. On Sunday, President Trump told Fox News that virulent town hall, or, or rather a virtual town hall, the COVID is virulent, the town hall was virtual, Um, that he believes a vaccine for coronavirus will be developed by the end of this year. But a global health expert had a more sobering outlook. Dr. David Nabarro, a special envoy to the World Health Organization on the coronavirus, said in an interview on Sunday that the global economy may have to assume that there will not be a vaccine and consider ways to approach the virus as a constant threat. Dr. Fauci did affirm that we could have a, a, a vaccine as early as January. So it's anyone's guess, I suppose, at this point. Well, Europe's top coronavirus hotspots are preparing to lift lockdown measures after seeing the biggest dip in new confirmed cases and deaths in weeks. Italy, Spain and France have all recorded their lowest daily spike in fatalities to date. And Costco is following Kroger's lead and announced over the weekend that it is temporarily limiting the amount of meat its members can buy in one trip. And the U.S. Senate returned in earnest on Monday for the first time since the 25th of March with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell calling lawmakers back to Washington amid enhanced precautions due to the coronavirus. And former House Speaker Newt Gingrich said on Monday that more than 400,000 people worldwide could ultimately die due to the Chinese dictatorship mishandling of the coronavirus outbreak. And post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, in coronavirus survivors and doctors is becoming a new focus for hospitals across the U.S., President Trump's re-election campaign is up with their first major TV blitz in the 2020 general election with a spot titled American Comeback that touts the jobs the president's uh, doing combating the coronavirus pandemic. And nearly two months after dogs started being uh, trained to sniff out COVID-19 in the UK, a similar program is now coming to the United States. And finally, hotels across America are doubling down with the coronavirus pandemic with proactive policies promoting hygiene and sanitation across their facilities to protect guests and employees. That is, if they ever have guests again. Well, an internal document featuring charts produced by FEMA projects far more new coronavirus cases than the White House is forecasted and nearly double the current daily death toll by the end of the month. But sources have raised questions about the reliability of the data. So if you hear the numbers, 
be a little skeptical because the experts are. In a statement, White House Deputy Press Secretary Judd Deere, he stressed that the document is not from the White House and that it hasn't been presented to the coronavirus task force. This is not a White House document, nor has it been presented. This data is not uh, reflective of any of the modeling done by the task force or data that the task force has analyzed. Now, it's been confirmed that the existence of the document, which was first reported in the New York Times, um, uh, says that a significant portion of the data comes from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The projections of new cases and deaths comes from modeling done at Johns Hopkins University. Now, those projections claim that by the end of this month, there will be 200,000 new coronavirus cases and 3,000 deaths every day. Now, this is a significant jump from current numbers of roughly 25,000 new cases and 1,750 deaths each day. Dr. Deborah Burks, the uh, response coordinator for the White House task force, has seen the document, even though it has not officially been presented to the full task force. And while these projections are sure to raise concerns about plans at the national and state level to begin reopening parts of the economy, sources said the modeling behind those projections doesn't take into account mitigation guidelines during that uh, phased reopening. Further, they note the data in the report is out of line with other projections. It's just a reminder that we don't really know what's going to happen over the long term. We're speculating, and these are informed speculations, but they certainly are not uh, speculations that we can confirm are accurate por portraits of what is, uh, is coming. Well, the coronavirus pandemic will likely not be controlled until two-thirds of the world's population is immune to the disease, and countries should be prepared for possible periodic outbreaks over the next two years, according to a new study. Bloomberg reported that a study from the Centers for Infectious Disease Research at the University of Minnesota suggested that there are several reasons why COVID-19 containment will be so challenging. Among them is the theory that those not showing symptoms may be most infectious. It has been widely reported that without a proven treatment, vaccine or cure, governments will have to limit social interaction. The coronavirus is considered highly contagious and most dangerous for the elderly population and those with, what do they call them, comorbidities underlying conditions. Health officials in the U.S. believe that shelter-in-place orders contributed to the lower-than-expected infection rate. But like many other countries, the U.S. is working on its reopening. About 30 million Americans have filed for unemployment since the beginning of the statewide lockdowns, and some business owners are eager to open their doors as well. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told a coronavirus press briefing earlier last month that the world may never return to the normal that was known before the outbreak. When we get back to normal, we will go back to the point where we can function as a society. And he went on to say, if you want to get back to pre-coronavirus, that might not ever happen in the sense that the threat is there. Now, we have that uh, same notion with the flu, but we don't have physiological resistance that we now have largely with the flu and vaccines that are available. So this will take some time to uh, to mitigate. And President Trump announced on Friday that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, had authorized the emergency use of Gilead Scientist's experimental antiviral drug, remdesivir, uh, to treat coronavirus patients after early results of a clinical study indicated the drug helps speed recovery. The president announced the news at the White House alongside Gilead CEO Daniel O'Day and FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn. FDA's emergency authorization of the drug two days after the National Institutes of Health's clinical trial showed promising results is a significant step forward in battling COVID-19 and another example of the Trump administration moving as quickly as possible to use science to save lives. 
That's a quote from Alex Azar, Health and Human Services Secretary, in a statement. The emergency use order allows the drug to be distributed to healthcare providers and administered to hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Well, taking a look at Oregon and Washington, Oregon Governor Kate Brown signed an executive order on Friday extending the state of emergency for another 60 days. Governor Brown, first, uh, her first executive order declared a state of emergency because of the coronavirus outbreak, was signed on the 8th of March. It expires on the 7th, uh, which is Thursday. Her own executive order extends the state of emergency until the 6th of July. Now, what does that mean exactly? We'll talk more about that in our next segment. But the state of emergency order allows the Oregon Health Authority and the Oregon, uh, rather the Office of Emergency Management, more authority to respond to the crisis. It also allows state agencies to waive rules or adopt temporary rules as needed. Oregon has sustained 109 deaths to date, but none as of yesterday. 2,680 cases of the virus have been noted, and among those tested, the vast majority negative. In the state of Washington, there have been 834 deaths thus far. In the United States, 67,781. The Oregon Brewers Festival, a 33-year-old event that draws a worldwide crowd, has been canceled due to the concerns about spreading COVID-19. Not surprisingly, the founder, Art Lawrence, announced on Monday the festival will return in July in 2021. The Portland Bureau of Transportation says to expect potentially high traffic congestion near the Lloyd Center Mall. That was this morning. Salvation Army held its first food box giveaway at uh, that location, the event uh, was held from 9 to 1 on a, and will be for a, on a weekly basis during the COVID emergency. And graduation at the University of Portland had a much different feel this year. Because of the pandemic, it was a virtual affair, as so many affairs are these days. More than a 1,000 students got their undergraduate and graduate degrees on Sunday, but for the first time, every student watched the ceremonies on their screens in accordance with Oregon's stay-at-home order. Well, the number of Oregonians sick enough to be hospitalized with coronavirus hit a new low on with state officials reporting 92 active hospitalizations. That number represents a significant drop of more than 40% from the 156 reported hospitalizations in early April. The first day, the state officials disclosed active hospitalizations for confirmed cases of COVID-19. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to tell you more of what's happening in Oregon and in Washington. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just keep in mind, at the top of the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Stephen Mosier, one of America's leading China experts and author of Bully of Asia, arguing that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible both for the origin and the global spread of COVID-19 and what the United States, he suggests, should do about it. Well, in a document released to counties throughout Oregon, Governor Kate Brown laid out specific details on seven prerequisites that have to be met before any county or region can enter phase one of the governor's reopening Oregon plan. Well, the governor's office uh, says the timeline for areas, rural and urban, depend on when they can meet this criteria. Well, her office said she and her team are holding a series of virtual meetings with counties and healthcare systems to discuss and collaborate. The governor said rural parts of the state with a few or no COVID-19 cases can likely start reopening as soon as the 15th of this month, but it will take longer for counties that have had more than five cases. 
Well, the process will happen much more slowly than any of us would like, the governor said in a press conference on Friday. Well, according to the documents sent to Oregon counties, the prerequisites for counties and regions to enter the first phase or reopening include declining prevalence of COVID-19. This only applies to counties with more than five cases. The percentage of emergency department visits for COVID-19-like illness are less than the historic average for the flu at the same time of year. And additionally, there has to be a 14-day decline in COVID-19 hospital admissions for the county or region. And again, this is a prerequisite for reopening. There needs to be minimum testing regimen. Um, Health regions must be able to test 30 people for every 10,000 people in the region every week. They have to prioritize people showing symptoms and anyone who came into contact with someone diagnosed with COVID-19, including people living in... um, Uh, the same households or congregate settings where someone tests positive. So this has to happen before considering opening regions or counties of the state. Uh, Contact tracing systems have to be in place. It entails tracking down and making contact with anyone who may have been exposed to the virus. Now, counties need at least 15 contact tracers for every 100,000 people living there and be prepared to contact trace 95% of new cases within a day. Contact tracers have to be able to carry out their work in a culturally appropriate way, and they have to be bilingual and multicultural. In other words, this is probably never going to happen. Number four, the governor says um, there have to be isolation facilities. Counties specifically need hotel rooms for people who test positive rather, and can't self-isolate. Counties must be able to uh, have a plan for how they're going to respond to different outbreaks at a nursing home, for example, a jail, food processing facility, farm worker housing, and other groups Uh, living in uh, together and um, finalizing statewide sector guidelines. The uh, Oregon Health Authority and other groups are working together on sector specific guidelines. Uh, In other words, within a county, there may be sectors. Every sector must adhere to those in order to protect its employees and customers and make the physical workplace safer. Again, these are things that have to be in place before reopening segments of Oregon or Oregon as a whole uh, can begin. There have to be sufficient health care capacity. Hospitals across health regions need to be able to handle COVID patients and other sick people. Each region has to be able to handle a 20% increase in suspected or confirmed COVID-19 hospitalizations compared to the number of hospitalizations in that region when the governor's executive order was issued back in mid-March. If the region's hospital capacity is under that level, an individual county can't move into the first phase of reopening. So that's a major impediment in certain areas. Sufficient personal protective equipment or PPE supplies. Uh, Larger hospital systems need a 30-day supply while smaller hospitals need enough gear for 14 days. All hospitals in the health region have to report their daily PPE supply to OHA, which is the Oregon Health Authority. And counties must prove they have enough PPE for first responders. So uh, supply as well. Now, there are health regions uh, in, the, uh, in this plan. Health Region 1 includes Clatsop, Columbia, Tillamook, Washington, Multnomah, and Clackamas counties. The second region is Yamhill, Polk, Lincoln, Benton, Marion, and Lynn. Health Regions 3 and 5, Lane, Douglas, Coos, Curry, Jackson, and Josephine counties. Health Regions 6 and 9, Hood, uh, Hood River, Wasco, Sherman, Gilliam, Morrow, Umatilla, Union, Wallawa, Baker, and Malheur, and Health Region 7, Jefferson, Deschutes, Crook, Wheeler, Grant, Klamath, Lake, and Harney. So these uh, regions are tethered to one another um, in this moving forward toward reopening.
said the governor in the news conference. So what I would say to all Oregonians is, regardless of what phase you are in, in terms of reopening, we are still going to have to be careful in terms of spreading the virus. It is just going to be a different type of normal. Well, until we have a vaccine or treatment for the disease, state leaders say that we'll still have to physically distance, practice good hygiene, which I would hope we would do, and while recommended, um, wear masks in public to protect other people. The governor's office says that she spoke with healthcare care uh, systems and leaders in the following counties um, on Friday about the process of reopening uh, some of those counties. I won't mention them all, but um, so that process at least is being seriously considered and they're moving in that direction. Well, in Clark County, they added six COVID-19 cases over the weekend. The Clark County Public Health confirmed six new COVID-19 cases, but no new deaths Monday morning. Since public health does not report new cases on Saturday and Sunday, the six cases represent um, uh, the last several days. And a um, pyrotechnics uh, distributor needed to oversee the arrival of a massive shipment of imported fireworks. Um, You can pick it up here. And Washington businesses filed 14,000 pleas to reopen soon after the coronavirus shut down. Well, many Washington parks uh, reopened, but not beaches or the gorge. More than uh, 100 state parks, trails, and boating sites across Washington state reopened uh, will reopen on Tuesday as some coronavirus restrictions are eased. But many popular sites remain closed indefinitely, according to the governor and officials. Parks that open will be limited to daytime use only, and the number of parking spaces will be reduced as some urban parks uh, to discourage crowding. Public lands managed by the Department of Natural Resources and the Department of Fish and Wildlife also will reopen on Tuesday. Again, we're talking about the state of Washington. Discussions on when those sites could open are ongoing and involve park administrators, local community leaders, and officials in the state of Oregon, state parks officials, and so on. Parks have been closed more than a month and are being reopened under the first phase of Governor Jay Inslee's plan to ease rules imposed to prevent the uh, spread of the virus. Beaches and campgrounds would reopen under the second phase of the plan, although large gatherings would still be banned. State officials plan to wait at least three weeks between each phase to see how the changes affect infection rates and how people are observing the new rules. The Washington State Parks and Recreation Commission posted a list of which parks will be open and which remain closed on its website. So you can check that out there. Well, if you have yet to receive your stimulus check, as it's called, um, here are a few reasons why that might be the case. Well, the federal government started issuing those uh, relief checks uh, to individuals and families weeks ago, but so far millions still haven't received checks or direct deposit. A couple of reasons why. You don't qualify. Now, many people simply are not eligible for that money. According to the CARES Act, non-resident immigrants are not eligible for payments, nor are individuals who are claimed as dependents by others. Additionally, the $500 per child bonus payments only apply to children under the age of 17. Also, the law says that payments can be offset by any past due child support payments that have been reported to the Treasury Department. Another reason why someone may not be eligible is they earn too much money. Individuals who earn more than $75,000, joint filers who earn more than a combined $150,000 in those Uh, Filing as heads of households who earn more than $112,000 will have their payments reduced by $5 for every $100 in income above those marks. Also, one common reason why payments are, uh, are delayed is the applicant used tax preparation services to file their taxes. So if you did them yourself, you're more likely to either have it or it's, uh, 
uh, on its way. Now, those services set up temporary accounts for some customers to receive tax refund payments from the IRS so they can deduct fees before passing the remainder along to the recipient. Now, according to a ProPublica report, banks were, where those temporary accounts were located have been getting people stimulus checks and returning them to the IRS claiming they received them in error. So they're going back to the federal government, and who knows how long it will be before they make the rounds back to where they belong. There's also the possibility that the IRS has incorrect banking information. Uh, if you filed a paper return, then your, pay- your payment amounts are determined in most cases by income as reported in people's tax returns. If you send it by paper, then they're going to send your check by paper as well. You normally get paper checks for tax refunds. That's what you're going to get in this case. Or the wrong amount might be the issue. In some cases, people received payments, just not the correct amount. For example, the IRS has recognized that there are Americans who did not receive their bonus payments of $500 per child. And while they haven't explained why this has happened, the government says that in these cases, people can claim the additional money when they file their 2020 tax returns. Not that that's going to help them today while they're unemployed, but at least that gives you some idea of some of the reasons why people haven't received their checks. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Stephen Mosher, one of America's leading China experts and the author of Bully of Asia. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. And I've looked forward to the conversation we're just about to share with Stephen Mosier, who's one of America's leading China experts. And he's arguing that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for both the origin and the global spread of the Wuhan flu. Now, disturbing news from China has been dominating the headlines for the past few weeks. The world now lives in fear that the China coronavirus will kill millions. But if we want to stop the spread of the deadly virus, social distancing and medicines like chloroquine are not enough. My next guest argues that the world, led by the United States, must not only isolate the virus, it must isolate and punish the source of the scourge, China itself. Stephen Mosier, once again, one of America's leading China experts, author of um, the uh, celebrated book, Bully of Asia. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Well, it's very good to be with you, uh, uh, Georgine. I know that we've talked before, but boy, yes. we have uh, a lot of news outside of China, out, out of China, and uh, news, unfortunately, that's affected the health and well-being of the whole world. Uh, we knew for years, of course, that the Chinese Communist Party was a danger uh, to the Chinese people. All you have to do is look at the death toll uh, that has been racked up for the last 70 years. I mean, tens of millions of Chinese have been killed by famine, by political persecutions, uh, by Prisoners being executed for their organs. The concentration camps have uh, have uh, spread all over China. But now, of course, we see the Chinese Communist Party is not just a threat to the Chinese people, but a threat to the entire world, uh, which puts it in a rather different light, doesn't it? It really does. Let's talk about what we know about the role that China played in uh, making the, uh, or should I say, um, the origin of this uh, this pandemic. What do we know about what the, the Chinese did? Was this a deliberate act? Was this inadvertent? Uh, and is the primary concern what happened after um, COVID-19 or the coronavirus was uh, released? Well, I mean, we, we what we have here is is a, a whole a series of, of errors and, and misdeeds and deception uh, by the communist Chinese Communist Party from the outset. And it's bad enough, of course, that they 
hid the epidemic. They weren't transparent. They lied about human-to-human transmission. All that we know already. But what we now need to focus on is the fact that I believe that this virus, this coronavirus, uh, was created in the Wuhan Institute of Virology by a woman by the name of Dr. Shir. Her full name in Chinese is Shir Zhengli. I speak, read, and write Chinese, by the way, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's known as China's Batwoman. And China's Batwoman was in the business of not just collecting uh, bat coronaviruses by the hundreds and keeping them in her lab. She was also in the business of creating new and deadly coronaviruses. Now, some of her work has actually been published in scholarly journals. There's a 2008 article in the Journal of Virology. And she described there how she was taking harmless coronaviruses from horseshoe bats. I mean harmless because they weren't capable of infecting human beings, right? They were bat viruses, not human viruses. But then she was doing this. She was genetically engineering them to be able to infect human beings, just like the original SARS virus does, that deadly SARS virus. So she was taking harmless viruses and splicing in parts of the deadly SARS virus to make them uh, potentially uh, deadly pathogens to infect and kill human beings. Uh, why would you even do that? Yeah, that Let was my question. About that for a minute. But, but, well, the, the, reason, the reason you would do that, uh, according to virologists who are getting paid lots of money to do this kind of research, which is called gain-of-function research. What kind of functions does the virus gain? Well, it gains the ability to kill and infect human beings. That's what gain-of-function research is all about. It gain, you know, it's enhanced. Uh, it enhances the virus's ability, lethality, and infectiousness. And you ask yourself, you know, why would we be funding such efforts? Well, the answer was the, the virologists came to the U.S. government and they said, uh, give us money and we will create superbugs in the laboratory. And once we create these superbugs, these deadly viruses, we will investigate them. We will develop therapies against them. Uh, we, will, we will develop vaccines against them. And when the next pandemic erupts on the world, when the next coronavirus escape, you know, escapes from nature into human beings, uh, we'll be ready for it. Well, that's all fun and games until what? Until the new deadly superbug escapes from the lab before you have a vaccine, before you have therapies, before you have any idea how to deal with it. And, and I believe that's what happened in the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab run by Dr. Schur. We know she was doing secret research there. There was the public research that she was doing, and then there was the secret research. In other words, some of the bat coronaviruses she was isolating and studying, she didn't report in Cell Magazine or the Journal of Virology or the Journal of Infectious Disease. She kept it to herself. The result of this research wasn't, weren't published, although I think that China's leaders knew what she was doing. Uh, they were briefed on it. Uh, we don't know how many ways she tried to, to enhance uh, this one bat coronavirus uh, that's known as RATG13, but she kept it secret for 13 years. And finally, I believe she was able to tinker with it until she made it much more deadly and much more infectious than it was originally. And then what happened? It leaked from the lab. How does that happen? Uh, presumably, this is a, a laboratory that has um, redundancy in terms of protecting what, what can and cannot escape from the facility. How does that happen? I think most people I'm hearing suggest that this was inadvertent. It wasn't deliberate. But how might that happen? And why would the Chinese government not immediately call upon the international community? And if you know anything about the communist Chinese government, it may have already answered the question to try to prevent this from spreading. Right. 
Well, first of all, we know we know now. We didn't know then, but we know now how highly infectious uh, the Wuhan virus is. Right, the China coronavirus. It can be transmitted uh, by almost casual contact. It can be transmitted by droplets in the air. Not as lethal as we once thought, but highly infectious. Which means what? Which means that in the lab, you have to be very, very careful all the time to perfectly practice proper lab safety procedures. You cannot violate protocol because if you do, if you slip even for an instant, this highly infectious coronavirus is going to infect you. Now, we know that the safety protocols in the Wuhan Institute of Virology were not very well kept. We know that because we know the training and practices of Dr. Schur's lab uh, were not up to snuff. We know that because even the World Health Organization refused to grant it certification. You know, the same World Health Organization that has been covering up and lying for China for months, mm -hmm. they refused to say that this lab meets international standards for a level four biosecurity lab, high containment lab. And we know also that the State Department sent two scientists down to the Wuhan Institute back in 2018. They came back shaking their heads saying, this isn't being run as a level four high containment lab. It's being run maybe as a level two lab, uh, a low containment lab. I would say, Georgie, it's being run as a no containment lab because it got out. It got out by infecting a lab worker. Uh, either the lab worker was handling, carelessly handling an infected animal with this new and dangerous enhanced virus that Dr. Schur had created, or maybe the lab worker was handling the coronavirus itself, the isolate in a test tube directly. Either way, someone got sick, and then it spread like wildfire throughout the densely populated city of Wuhan. I mean, by late December 2019, this virus was all over the city of Wuhan. And, uh, and then, of course, it gets really interesting because the, the Wuhan Institute was getting desperate to cover up its, its responsibility. It, it covered up its complicity in this. What might have been the outcome if the uh, Wuhan Institute itself had responsibly responded and if the Chinese government had responsibly been transparent rather than deceitful in informing the international community and seeking the help that it clearly needs? What might the outcome have been? Well, the, the University of Nottingham in, in England uh, published a study saying that 95% of the infections and deaths around the world could have been prevented if the World Health Organization, if the Chinese government had been transparent from the beginning. But let's go back even further. Let's go back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. As soon as that first lab worker got sick, and we believe she died, I think we know what her name is, and began to infect others, the Wuhan Institute of Virology at that point should have said, it leaked from our lab, you know, we're sorry, we have to stop this. It could have been contained with probably a few hundred or a couple thousand infections and very few deaths. Instead, they tried to cover it up. The city of Wuhan tried to cover it up. The province of Hubei tried to cover it up. And, of course, the government of China tried to cover it up and let millions and millions of people, some of whom were infected with the dangerous new lab-created coronavirus, fly all around the world. But get this, Georgine. Uh, they wanted, the Wuhan Institute wanted to deny that their virus, that they had isolated, this RATG13, was the basis for the, the SARS-2 virus. So what they did was they registered it on January 27th of this year. When did they find it? Well, they found it in 2013. So for seven mm -hmm. years, 
They were doing dangerous recombinant, you know, technological research on this, splicing and dicing it, making it more infectious and deadly. And then only after it escaped from the lab did they say, oh, by the way, uh, we isolated the, uh, the, the, the precursor. We isolated the basic uh, coronavirus back uh, seven years ago. We just didn't happen to tell you. Oh, oh boy, we're going to need to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Stephen Mosier, one of America's leading China experts, arguing that the Chinese Communist Party is responsible for both the origin and the global spread of the Wuhan flu that has implications for U.S. foreign policy. We'll get into that in just a few minutes, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Stephen Mosher. He is the author of Bully of Asia and uh, one of America's leading China experts. I've enjoyed your work for many, many years and appreciate your being with us here today. We were talking about the role that the Chinese um, government has played, as well as the virologists who are responsible for creating this pandemic that we are currently facing. But you argue that uh, there's there are implications for U.S. foreign policy and that the United States and for that matter, the rest of wor- the world must hold uh, the People's Republic of China accountable and responsible for what has happened uh, and that there must be repercussions. What should the U.S. response be, given what we are now facing and what we now know? Well, I, I think it's very clear that, that what the Chinese Communist Party did was declare biowarfare on the entire world. I'm not saying that this, this uh, superbug, this coronavirus, was, was designed to be a bioweapon. But dangerous, risky research was being conducted in a lab uh, that, that did not meet the safety requirements. It leaked out. It's the responsibility of the Chinese Communist Party from the beginning uh, for its origin for the leak and, of course, for its spread around the world. So, I mean, I think it's clear that we who thought uh, that the Chinese uh, government was a threat to its neighbors, a military threat, uh, we thought it was a threat on trade terms because they were cheating on trade and and uh, debasing their currency and and stealing 600 billion billion dollars that's billion with a B of uh, critical technology intellectual property from the U.S. every year. We thought that was bad, but some people were saying in the finance community and the guys who run the big box stores were saying, yeah, but you know, uh, China makes those goods really cheaply, and so we're getting some benefit because Chinese products are cheap. Well, if you factor in, Georgine, the cost to the world and to the U.S. economy of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, Chinese made in China goods no longer seem so cheap, do they? In fact, they seem like they they cost a lot of money. Anybody who's lost a job, anybody who's seen their business go bankrupt, anybody who's gotten sick, anybody who's seen a family member die, the cost is too much to bear. So we have to disengage from China. We We need a hard decoupling from the Chinese economy because it's a threat across all domains, military, strategic, economic. Now it's a threat uh, uh, to our very health and well-being. One of the things that we are hearing is that China shipped defective masks, PPE, and uh, other medical supplies uh, to countries around the world, Spain and the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, that before um, disclosing what was happening, they had uh, essentially taken up the world's supply of, uh, of, of PPE for their own use. Um, what are the implications of not only providing for its own people, but then uh, spewing out defective uh, masks and other resources to the rest of the world? Well, it, it just it just deepens their 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 culpability for everything that's happened. Imagine this: China is facing knows it's facing a pandemic in early January. 
Uh, it's determined to spread it around the world. But as that is happening, the word goes out to Chinese agents all around the world to buy up all of the PPE, all of the masks, all the respirators, all the ventilators they can get their hands on. Uh, we went to our local store here in Florida uh, when I first heard about the the viral outbreak in China because I said this is much more serious than the Chinese Communist Party is admitting. Uh, we got we got to our local pharmacy a day too late, and we were told by the clerk, uh, someone from China just came in and bought up our entire supply. <laughs> I mean, huh. they were they were vacuuming up PPE from all over the world. They completely depleted. For I have Australian friends. They completely depleted Australia's supplies. And so when the pandemic reached Australia's shores, people looked around and said, uh, "Where's the PPE? Where are the respirators and ventilators we're supposed to have?" They were all shipped to China. And then, in response to the world's pleas for help, China then ships defective equipment, defective tests, uh, defective PPE all around the world. And they charge an arm and a leg for it. They buy it on the cheap, and then they sell it dear. Uh, That's called, I don't know, profiting from a pandemic that you caused. Uh, How much more despicable does it get than that? You're profiting off people's misery. China is uh, promoting, and you make this point, the bizarre theory that the Wuhan flu is a made-in-America bioweapon that was released in China in an act of germ warfare. Is that resonating anywhere, or is that just laughable everywhere? Well, it, 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 may be, it may be catching on a little bit in China because the 94 million members of the Chinese Communist Party, the largest party and political party in the world, it's actually not a, a party, really, it's an organized conspiracy, but the 94 million members of the Chinese Communist Party have been told to spread the rumor that the, the, uh, the virus did not originate in Wuhan. It originated at our bio labs in Fort Detrick, Maryland. It was brought to China during the military games by the U.S. Army in late October, and it was deliberately used to infect China. And you can go to markets today in China where they have a sign before you go on the market saying, uh, in order to combat the American virus, the American virus, in order to combat the American virus, the announcement reads, uh, please wear your face mask and gloves. Uh, They're calling it the American virus. They're convincing some Chinese, not all Chinese, that it's true because they're waging a major propaganda campaign. But I think they're really admitting more than they intend to, because by calling it a bioweapon, uh, by saying that it originated in a lab, uh, by saying that it was deliberately uh, brought to China, they're really condemning themselves because, in fact, it was made in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It did leak from the lab and it was inflicted, uh, but not by America, by the misdeeds of the Chinese Communist Party on the Chinese people and the world. That's what really happened. Does the United States bear any responsibility for underwriting some of the work they were doing, albeit under um, the misnomer that this was in order to develop vaccines for future pandemics? But does the United States bear any responsibility for the financing of some of this work? Well, we had back in, 20, uh, in 2010, 2011, we had a big debate in the scientific community in the United States. And many scientists argued that the risk of creating superbugs in the lab outweighed the possible benefits. And I know that Dr. Fauci back in 2011, or the famous Dr. Anthony Fauci now, Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2011 in the pages of the Washington Post argued that the research was definitely worth doing because it could be used to prevent uh, the emergence of a future pathogen uh, of pandemic potential. Well, he won that argument. Uh, Hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent over the last few years funding this research. But in the United States, 
in 2014, six years ago, we called a halt to it because the scientists kept saying, this is too risky, we should stop. They kept doing the research in China after we called a halt to it here, and it kept being funded, uh, not just in China, but around the world by grants from the National Institutes of Health. So yeah, some of this research was being funded by the National Institutes of Health. I think most of that research was the stuff that Dr. Schur, the famous Batwoman, was actually publishing in, in international journals. Mm -hmm. I think her secret research was probably being funded by you know, the, the uh, Chinese People's Liberation Army. But nonetheless, any money that comes into a lab is fungible, can be used for any purpose you want. So we were, we were to an extent underwriting this research, and you've got to hand it to President Trump because as soon as he found out that money was going to the lab, he said, uh, <laughs> not one penny more. Yeah. You make the point that China is projecting a facade of international cooperation, but what they're actually doing is using the crisis that they created to achieve for President uh, uh, Xi Jinping presidency for life, uh, which is his dream of uh, world domination. The, the Chinese uh, character for, 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 for crises is composed of two parts, one which means danger and the other which means opportunity. They saw the danger early on uh, to the Chinese economy of this raging epidemic. And I think uh, the opportunity they seized was the opportunity to spread it around the world. I think the view of the uh, Chinese communist leadership was that if we're going to go down, uh, we're going to take the rest of the world with us. And of late, they have been buying companies overseas at fire sale prices. They bought, uh, last month, they brought, bought British Steel for a fraction of what it was worth. Why? Because the economy of Great Britain is in the tank because of the China virus. And so they were able to purchase it, you know, for pennies on the dollar. So they're going around looking for bargains. It's almost as if someone, you know, puts out bad information about a company uh, on the Internet. And then when the stock price is depressed, goes in and picks it up at fire sale prices. This shouldn't be allowed. We should put sharp restrictions on China's ability to buy American companies at this particular juncture when the stock prices are depressed, because they will be out there in predatory fashion trying to, to turn the danger into an opportunity for them to get a leg up on the rest of the world. Now, I, don't, I, you know, I think we're very, very blessed to have in office now a, a businessman who spent his entire adult life uh, reading bottom lines, making investment, understanding tax policy and regulatory policy, because he's exactly the man who can bring the, Amer the American economy back, I think, a lot faster than Chinese economy will come back. You know, the geniuses who run the Chinese Communist Party can't be everywhere. They can't understand everything. They've made a lot of missteps throughout this whole process. They will continue in doing so. And so I think we're going to come out stronger and China is going to come out weaker in all this. I think our overall policy ought to be exactly what President Reagan's policy was towards the Soviet Union. Uh, Reagan, for whom I once wrote a couple of speeches, was asked, what's our policy towards the USSR? And he said, we win, they lose. We win, they lose. That ought to be our policy towards the People's Republic of China. America wins, the PRC loses. Stephen Mosier, author of Bully of Asia, Why China's Dream is the New Threat to World Order. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's always an honor to have you on the program. And it's good to be here. It's an honor to be with you, Georgine. Thank you so much. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments, so stay with us. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I so appreciate Stephen Mosier. Um, and his insight, he, uh, anything he's written on the People's Republic of China is very informative and uh, very helpful. So I appreciate him. You know, one of China's um, 
underlings, I'm not quite sure how to describe North Korea, has been much in the news as well because Kim Jong-un has not been seen for a period of 20 days. And for him, that's very unusual. Well, apparently, Kim Jong-un has made his first public appearance, uh, according to the state media. Now, I don't know that anyone outside of North Korea has actually seen him or whether or not there were images broadcast, but the North Korean state media has claimed that the country's dictator, Kim Jong-un, made his first public appearance amid a flurry of speculation about his health and, more significantly, his death. Well, South Korea-based Yonhap News Agency, citing the state-run media from North Korea, reported that Kim attended a ceremony marking the completion of a fertilizer plant in Sushan in the South Pyongyang province on Saturday. Photos from the ceremony weren't immediately released. So, again, they're saying he was present, but there are not images to corroborate that. Kim was last seen on the 11th of April when he presided over a meeting in the country's um, ruling Workers' Party, Rumors of his possible death or illness started circulating shortly after he missed a ceremony to commemorate the 108th birthday, known as the Day of the Sun, of his grandfather, who's long dead, and North Korea's founder, Kim Il-sung. South Korea's government had downplayed rumors and unconfirmed reports that he was in poor health following a medical procedure, saying it had detected no unusual activity in North Korea. Uh, the Daily NK, a, a Seoul-based publication that bases, um, bases most of its reports on testimony from North Korean defectors and other sources inside the country, reported the secretive leader was recovering from a surgery at a coastal luxury resort. Well, when asked about the report of Kim's sighting on Friday, President Trump told reporters at the White House, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> wow, something he doesn't want to talk about. He hinted earlier this week that he knew the status of Kim's health. Well, The Sun reported on Friday that Kim Jong-un, again, uh, may be holed up in the port city of Wonsan, possibly with around 2,000 sex slaves comprised of, well, we don't need to go into that. Uh, In 2015, Kim uh, resurrected the squad created by his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. Some of the girls are reported to be as young as 13, were forced to leave school to become workers for the dictator. Defectors said the girls uh, go through rigorous examinations to prove they're um, newcomers. Uh, The report said Kim, who is married, preferred uh, newcomers uh, because he believed he would absorb the girls' key or life force if he was with them. Well, the idea to create a group of comfort women became a reality in the 1970s when Kim Il-sung sent officials to look for the most attractive women in the country. According to The Sun, parents apparently had no say in the matter just like the people of North Korea have no say in virtually any matter. Well, the girls were reportedly kept in the mansions of a party leaders and uh, were told to obey everything they were told. Some military officers uh, married some of these women after they were allowed to quit their duties in their 20s. So who knows whether or not that relates to this story. But nonetheless, the um, NK is indicating that he made his first appearance in 20 days although there are no images to prove that that was, in fact, the case. Well, prominent pastor David Jeremiah has revealed that amid the COVID-19 pandemic, his ministry has reached an unprecedented number of people with the message of the gospel, indicating an online revival may be taking place. Now, this is uh, one of many reports of similar activities online where people are coming to faith in Christ in large numbers. Well, due to government-issued social distancing orders that were enacted to help prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus, Churches have been live streaming their services online as large physical gatherings are temporarily halted. Well, the senior pastor of Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, California, David Jeremiah, and the host of the radio program Turning Point 
which is heard right here on KPDQ, told the Christian Post that ever since the shutdown began, viewership of his online services have dramatically skyrocketed. The church is alive and well and maybe more responsive now than I've ever remembered, except for the possible exception of 9-11. What we've learned from all of this is God doesn't need a building for the church to exist. Well, the founder of Turning Point Radio and Television Ministries revealed that on Easter Sunday, a staggering 90,000 people tuned into his online worship service. 90,000. I'm preaching right now on more people, or rather two more people, than I have ever preached to in my life adding that after the service, he gave viewers the opportunity to receive Christ. I said, if you pray this prayer and invite Christ into your life, he will come to live within you. And I actually led them in a prayer, the pastor called, recalled. Then I said, if you prayed with me, there's a little place on the screen that you can click on where we will send you more information to help you get started on your walk with Christ. Well, according to uh, David Jeremiah, 600 people clicked on that button. I've been doing this for over 50 years, he says, and all over media, And I've never had anything like this happen ever. Uh, He emphasized, would I rather have the uh, 12 or the 15,000 people that have um, that we have on Easter sitting in the church with our choir and orchestra and the Easter lilies and everybody cheering and praising? Yeah, I'd rather have that. But this is a new and different thing that God is doing. It's unprecedented. And I appreciated the way he looks at it. This is a new and different thing that God is doing. I'm not suggesting that God has imposed this virus upon the earth. We can do that on our own. But God is doing something in the midst of this, working all things together for the good of those who know him, giving opportunity for uh, the gospel to be preached effectively and people who otherwise might not be attentive to hear to listen. And he says this is a different thing God is doing. It's unprecedented. Similarly, the pastor revealed that a recent sermon he delivered in which he addressed whether COVID-19 is mentioned in biblical prophecy received over a million views on YouTube. We've never had anything on YouTube get that kind of traction, he said. When everything in which we have trusted is taken away and we are left with ourselves, we have to ask the hard questions. If this is it, what happens to me now? There's a renewed interest in the gospel and a desire to know what the Bible has to say. Is this the beginning of a revival? This may be a revival in the truest sense of the Great Awakening, but I believe we are seeing an online revival. While the pandemic is frightening and frustrating for many people, David Jeremiah stressed that God is clearly in the midst of it all, adding that he is with us wherever we are. You don't have to be in a crowd to have God. You just need a quiet moment. Well, the pastor released his latest book, Shelter in God, Your Refuge in Time of Trouble. How timely is that? Uh, In it, he shares how the book of Psalms can aid those struggling to find meaning during the coronavirus pandemic. Everybody is currently sheltering in place, and that's one thing that might help you physically, but if you want to get help spiritually, you must shelter in God. He's the only answer for the many things that are rippling uh, people apart during the coronavirus epidemic. So an encouraging perspective on what's happening and how God is using even uh, this evil and destructive pandemic to reach out to people and for people to um, have their ears poised to hear in ways that perhaps they hadn't prior to it. So that's an encouraging thing to consider. Once again, the book that he has released during this uh, season, Shelter in God, Your Refuge in Times of Trouble. I would encourage you, if you're looking for a resource to encourage someone that you know, this might be a great book to uh, recommend. Um, His latest book, again, David Jeremiah, Shelter in God, Your Refuge in times of trouble. I want to remind you that Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. 
And uh, we're going to focus uh, much of our conversation on that fact, but it's also a great opportunity for us to pray uh, for revival, even though we are doing so remotely. We'll talk about the 69th National Day of Prayer to be observed this Thursday and the call to pray for revival that goes along with it when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. This is our final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. The 69th National Day of Prayer is coming up this Thursday. It's always observed on the first Thursday in May. The Southern Baptist Convention is calling on Americans to join in this nationwide uh, effort, this remote prayer gathering for spiritual awakening and for revival, and to pray specifically for seven centers of influence. And that's, uh, of course, what the focus of the National Day of Prayer is. It is to pray for the health of our nation, the spiritual vigor of our nation. As the theme of the National Day of Prayer is Pray God's Glory Across the Earth, The Southern Baptist Convention is urging Christians to pray for God's glory into the seven centers of influence of government, the military, media and arts, business, education, church, and family. Pray for wisdom for federal, state, and local officials in all matters related to COVID-19 and the major national and global challenges they address daily. Pray that God will work in them and through them, the prayer guide says. Ask God for a great spiritual awakening in the United States. Certainly, our current circumstances, David Jeremiah indicated in his latest interview, indicate that people are more open. They're recognizing their own mortality and perhaps thinking more deeply about the lack of control that we have over the events of the world and our vulnerability that might lead us to question whether or not we are prepared for the future and what happens when we die. So this is what they're asking us to pray for. Well, due to the coronavirus pandemic, Christian leaders are going to gather remotely to observe the National Day of Prayer. Um, J.D. Greer, who's the president of uh, Southern Baptist Convention, will lead the online National Day of Prayer and fasting event on Thursday afternoon. And of course, you can join them remotely. The gathering is going to be streamed live in several places, including the uh, Facebook page of the Southern Baptist Church Executive Committee and Baptist Press Facebook pages. They're going to be hosting another prayer event on Wednesday as well, prior to the official National Day of Prayer. Well, the day before the National Day of Prayer, Ronnie Floyd, president and CEO of the Executive Committee, is going to be joined by Fred Lunsford, a 95-year-old retired pastor and revivalist who started the prayer movement, Greg Mathis, who's pastor of the Mud Creek Baptist Church, in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and David Horton, president of Fruitland Baptist Bible College, for Praying on the Mountain, a nationwide remote prayer gathering for spiritual awakening and revival. The trio are among those who've been involved in the effort to gather churches together to pray for a spiritual awakening. So this is an opportunity to broaden that to people who may not be aware of the uh, effort to bring churches together, but have an opportunity on the National Day of Prayer to come together around that event. On why he joined uh, the three, Floyd said that as soon as I watched the message on America by Greg Mathis, as well as his compelling interview with 95-year-old Pastor Fred Lunsford, I joined the team to pray on May the 5th, which has been scheduled to, or rather rescheduled to May the 6th, for spiritual awakening in America. The Wednesday event, in which more than 100,000 people are expected to pray with Lunsford, We'll feature an account of how Lunsford initially felt God speaking to him, telling him to pray for revival, and of how Mathis, Horton, and others caught that same vision. 
Well, two years ago, Lunsford thought it was time for the Lord to take him home as he had pastored for 70 years, fought World War II, preached at revivals all over the U.S., but God had different plans for his life. He extended many years for a reason, Pastor Lunford said, and he wanted me to pray for spiritual awakening and to get as many people praying as I could. According to the Baptist press, God spoke into my heart and I yielded to it. It's not me, it's the Lord. Well, Floyd said that while he has been praying for a spiritual awakening for years, never have I seen a greater moment for this to occur in America than today. This great pause that we're all in, not just here across the fruited plain, but across the world. God has given us time that we would not otherwise have. He's reduced the distractions that might prevent us from praying in this kind of fervent and effective way for the people that we care about across the country and around the world to pray for revival and a great awakening for this country. So on Wednesday, that prayer is going to uh, to take place. You can find all the details on the National Day of Prayer website. You could just Google that or use your own search engine to find it. Um, but there's going to be a gathering of prayer the day before the National Day of Prayer, which is, of course, the Wednesday, and then the event that will take place uh, the day of, where we have an opportunity to pray for those in spheres of influence, the government, military, media and arts, business, education, church, and family. We need to pray for our economy, for decision makers, for those who are fueling the economy, those who hire um, most of us, for the people for whom we um, we work, that the resources and, and food supplies and all of the, the things that we need to survive would be made available, that the churches would be prepared uh, for the days ahead, and because from what I understand, the new normal is going to be um, long in um, in res- well resuming to some degree what we had known prior to this uh, pandemic just months ago. Uh, so there are so many opportunities to influence and to pray, and God has given us the time and the resource to do so when we perhaps have very little else. So the National Day of Prayer is coming up on Thursday, and we'll be focusing on that. Uh, on the program on Thursday. Well, as many of you know, because we are all sheltered in place and broadcasting from my home, James' home, and Clark's home, each of us doing a different part and putting the program together, we haven't been live now for several weeks. It's a a bit of a challenge, and I've had several conversations with uh, James um, just making the point that I would love to have an opportunity to have a conversation with you to see how you're doing. And we're working on the possibility of uh, being able to do the show live for that purpose at some point in the near future. So keep your ears open for that. But I just hope and pray that you're doing well, that um, you are spending the time that God has given each of us for prayer and reflection and Bible study, that we're growing in our faith and our confidence in him, and that we will survive these days and be better fit for uh, serving him well in the days ahead. Well, I appreciate your listening. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thanks for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.